Hello and welcome to the Modern Poetry Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my friend Caitlin Pertree for a third discussion of Wallace Stevens's poetry. Caitlin, thank you for showing up again and doing this series with me. This is uh, your choice, so I feel you should introduce it. But first, how are you? I'm doing well today. Doing very well today. Excited to be doing this one. Glad to hear it. So how did you run into the poem? I actually read it for the first time as an undergrad in a uh, lyric poetry class that I took, I guess, when I was a sophomore in college. We did it with uh, several other Stevens poems, but this is the one that has stuck with me and the one that I remember the most vividly from the class. So excited to be able to revisit it today. Okay, folks, now we will reveal the mystery poem that is Caitlin's favorite. It's called Of Mere Being part of Stevens's posthumous publications, actually. And as you will see when she reads it, you get a certain sense that it's a last will and testament, or it's a parting conclusion. It's got all the Stevens themes we've been considering before, the difficulty of grasping the world, the discontinuity between human experience and the rest of the world or nature and also the need to criticize human experience for flights of fancy and to try to identify what it is that arrests our attention, what it is that forces us to pay attention and to bring out of ourselves the powers of interpretation and the powers of metaphors, of making a big deal out of things. What volume is it collected in, Caitlin? I have it in um, a volume called Wallace Stevens, The Palm at the End of the Mind, Selected Poems and a Play. And this is the volume that is edited by his daughter, Holly Stevens, in case anybody would like to go find it for themselves. Yes, I was curious because I did not find it in my own collected verse, which was published in the last year of his life. So this was a very late composition and I'm glad it was saved. It's a beautiful poem and it has led us on a couple of conversations already. I'm glad we now have a chance to record one. So first of all, take us through the poem. Sure, sure. Of mere being, the palm at the end of the mind, beyond the last thought, rises in the bronze decor. A gold-feathered bird sings in the palm, without human meaning, without human feeling, a foreign song. You know then that it is not the reason that makes us happy or unhappy. The bird sings, its feathers shine. The palm stands on the edge of space. The wind moves slowly in the branches. The bird's fire-fangled feathers dangle down. So this is our brief poem four stanzas of three lines each. The first and the last start with the discussion of the palm that attracts our attention first and last. And then there is the bird, which maybe is what calls our attention to this. We'll have to talk about the different levels at which the poem does its work with images. In one sense, it seems like you're in a gallery looking at a painting. Mm -hmm. There's a palm tree, maybe on an island or at any rate on the beach, in the sunset, that's the bronze decor, and there's a bird in the tree. So it's just that Mm -hmm. image there and you'd have to make something of it. 
on the other hand you, you could say it's an experience it's about being there and encountering that and figuring out why it is of importance why does it matter it has to mean something because it matters in a specific way so there are these two ways of thinking about the image he presents you with and he tries to guide us somewhat as to what we're tempted to think about these things why we should reject that and what the alternative for poetry would be but of course poetry is not exactly a painting in a gallery and is not exactly an experience you yourself or i myself could have it's distinct of its own kind but the poet is somehow making an artifact like the painting and on the other hand is like us in the situation of experiencing a scene that may lead him into perplexity and wonderment so the poem unlike the painting is not just an artifact it's also supposed to guide you into a certain experience you could say that this is the advantage of speech so let's try and do a brief commentary on the poem stanza by stanza sure would you like me to reread the first stanza all right yes, please the palm at the end of the mind beyond the last thought rises in the bronze decor so first is what comes to sight first yes there's a palm tree there that's something that you can see and if somebody writes it down on the page and you read it you can see it in your mind Mm -hmm. everybody's seen a palm tree just summons in your mind and nevertheless even as he describes this scene he cautions you this is beyond the last thought he interrupts his description as though to caution you it's not what you think it's not going to be a fable or an allegory or uh, something that gives the palm tree a meaning which is not itself a palm tree this is a palm tree you're just seeing it's center for you, that is to say, in the center of your attention when you read about it, but it is in fact beyond the last thought. It's a palm tree you've just seen. You don't know anything about it. You have not thought anything about it. Hmm. And he seems to be concerned with the fact that the setting by itself, there's the bronze decor and there's the palm tree, should have a certain power over you. Yeah, an arresting power. Mm-hmm. He attracts your attention to how dramatic it all is. It's not the bronze sky or the heavens or what have you. It's a decor as though on a stage set, mm -hmm. as though it had been made up. But of course, decor is the decor for something. If you set the stage, you have to set the stage for something. It is the case, ultimately, that these moments that feel almost like they're staged, picture perfect, are already part of your consciousness and part of your attempt to understand your situation in the world. Whatever is going to happen is happening on a scene fit for it. It is dramatic. It is compelling. Mm -hmm. Yes, and just returning to the level of images, I love the image that he's creating here in that I think of bronze and I think of something harsh and inorganic. And in the middle, you have this organic. He doesn't ever say that it's green, but I think we can safely assume that it's green. So there's that lovely contrast between the inorganic, harsh hardness, I suppose is a better word for the bronze, and then the organic green nature. There is some living thing rising. Yeah. It's not just there. It rises as though you're moving towards it and it shows up against this metallic brightness. It's coming into your consciousness as you're just apprehending it. 
So at first you think that of mere being means it's the being of the palm tree. It's set against this striking, very shiny, bright background, but it is the only being there. Being is set against the sky, tied to the earth, and living in a certain way that is growing. There is your metaphysics. Mm -hmm. But of course, there is more to it than that. He goes on to the next stanza without any grammatical connection, connecting by a comma the first and second stanza, as though to insist that this is one thing you should be taking together. Yes, he writes, A gold-feathered bird sings in the palm without human meaning, without human feeling, a foreign song. This is what he wants to connect to the apparition of the palm tree. A bird singing. Again, he repeats this procedure as he describes the scene for you. A gold-feathered bird is singing in the palm. He interrupts himself to caution you. It is without human meaning. It is without human feeling the foreign song of the bird, you'd be tempted again to interpret it in some way, to make something out of it that is of human making and wouldn't really be true to the bird. It wouldn't be bird song anymore. He wants you to experience both palm and bird as they are, as much as possible, as he says, beyond the last thought. Here you run into a problem. If he tells you there's a palm tree, you can see a palm tree in your mind. If he tells you there's a bird singing, you can see the gold-feathered bird, again, you start with your eyes, but you can't see the song. It's much harder to imagine the song in your mind, and maybe it's precisely because it's a foreign song. If it's your favorite pop song, then you might imagine that with no difficulty. If it's your favorite aria from an opera, there's no difficulty imagining that. This is harder to imagine. If you try it, if you give it a moment's thought, you see that it really is foreign. You can't just summon it in your imagination from your own resources, as you could any number of other things. Maybe the gold-feathered bird is the reason you're paying attention to the tree in the first place. If you imagine the scene, perhaps that's what attracts your attention, the bird song. But in poetry, things work differently. It's the palm tree first, and the bird second, and the song last, and most foreign. It is least available to you. Here, therefore, his caution is most plausible, that there is no human meaning or human feeling in the bird song. You could add it to it and make it something else, but it is not there. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, his insistence on the nature you're experiencing, the tree and the bird, being beyond human experience, can't but put you in mind of something else happening in the poem. The experience he's trying to get you to undergo through the poetic imagery and the thoughts he offers you is not pleasant. You're running up against the limits of humanity. There is something beyond thought, and there is something without human meaning and without human feeling. That is what is truly foreign, and that is what you're supposed to be experiencing here. As you pointed out, the bronze decor is not friendly. It's not supposed to make you feel good. This thing, this scene set at the end of the mind, these are the limits of humanity. This is what we're confronting here. Yes. To return to that bronze decor, it's not an environment in which you would necessarily feel at home, I suppose. It's not an inviting... It's inviting in the sense that it captures your attention and your curiosity, but it's not... I wouldn't call it an inviting environment, necessarily. Yes. So let's go on to the third stanza. You know then that it is not the reason that makes us happy or unhappy. 
the bird sings, its feathers shine. Now we see this second sentence and a few more. They show up because Stevens is ready to draw a conclusion. Something follows from that scene with which he has confronted you. Yes. You have learned something. You have acquired some knowledge. You thought you were in it for the beautiful. Wow, what a gorgeous scene. Mm-hmm. You're not in it for the beautiful. It's, it's learning something true. And moreover, it's not knowledge about the world. It's knowledge about yourself. You're learning something about the causes or reasons that make for happiness and unhappiness. The knowledge is primarily negative. Experiencing that scene, the beautiful sunset in the evening of uh, an island or the Florida Keys where Stevens used to go and the bird in the tree, that's not the reason that makes us happy or unhappy. Presumably, precisely because it is not human, what he's been insisting on. Mm -hmm. You're confronted with a phenomenon there. The bird sings, its feathers shine, but it is not the cause of happiness. It is just there. Yes. But this also means, of course, that you're in some sense removed from the scene. You're a spectator to something that, as you say, is not inviting. It's not your home. You can't be at home there. Mm -hmm. It is not what makes you happy or unhappy. It is not what's proper to mind, to thought. Yes. I get the sense reading this that whether or not you observe this scene... The bird will sing and the feathers will shine and your being there as an observer has nothing to do with that. The bird is not singing for you and its feathers are not shining for you. Yeah, you can apprehend, you can understand what's happening, but in a very important sense, it doesn't concern you. This suggests a view of the beautiful we're not used to that. The beautiful is the cage you're trapped in or your awareness of the cage. You can see these things, you can recognize this sort of scene, but it doesn't allow you to break through, to go beyond. You can reach to the end of the mind, you can just sense something beyond the last thought, but that's it. It goes no further. That's very interesting. It it places beauty, if we're going to refer to a platonic sense, I should say, it places beauty squarely in the here and now, the world in front of us. Whereas in Plato, you would have beauty before you, in front of you. But that's supposed to help get you to the realm of the true and the good, capital T and capital G. It's supposed to help you ascend, whereas Stevens places it all on the same plane, I think. Or or am I taking that too far? I'm not sure exactly what the difference is. In both cases, you seem to be at the edge of the phenomena and at the edge of human experience. But you're mm-hmm. right that there is a certain question of whether there's any transcendence. Yes, that's exa- That's what I'm getting at. And this too is trickier than it seems. Stevens doesn't deny that there's such a thing as happiness or unhappiness. It just says that it's not nature that does it. Our experience of the world mm-hmm. is not causative. And that might point to a different sort of transcendence. I see. It's still possible, but you cannot necessarily use your experience of nature to arrive there. And, of course, there's something to be said for Plato suggesting that human beings aren't fully at home in the world as well. It's certainly not intended to make you feel at home in the world or to reconcile you to it. Mm -hmm. But they do sound and seem very different Everything in this 
poem seems to insist on negative experiences, not on myths that suggest the impossible, like the myth in the Fedrus of the chariot of the soul ascending beyond the heavens to the beings themselves. Mm-hmm. But they might not be so different after all. Myths aren't intended fully, earnestly, any more than poems are. They are both artifices of an author. And so in the center of this short poem, you have two short stanzas about the bird. You have to experience the look and sound of the bird to know that it's not what makes you happy. And I think the suggestion here is that what we want out of the beautiful primarily is happiness, not insight. We would like to learn something or to get something from these experiences to make them meaningful. But he seems to think that that's not how it works. After all, a poem is not an experience. It is something you have to think through and arrange and modify and correct and present just right to achieve any success as an artist. And so you could say that the poet has an interest in putting the artificial above the spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Or filtering the spontaneous through something that, through the poetic creation, but doing that renders it, renders it artificial. Yeah, the spontaneous in a poem is made up. The only spontaneous thing is the psychological art of the poet that makes him able to summon images in our minds and lead us to certain moods and thoughts by that. The things with which we are confronted in the poem are new to us, but they're not new to the poet. And somehow what is new to us is supposed to lead to what it is that the poet is thinking about. And he tells you it's what the source of happiness is or what is causative when it comes to happiness, that's what matters, and it's not going to be the things you're thinking about in terms of the beautiful, arresting sights and sounds. That is not, in fact, the cause of happiness. He doesn't mean that if you look at the sunset, you're not going to be happy. You might. He's just trying to point out what the relationship between being human and the rest of being is. The rest of being will not cause your happiness exactly. Happiness somehow has to do with being human, that is to say, not with the bird being a bird or the palm being a palm tree or even the sunset being the sunset. I think the suggestion he's working towards here is that the things that take our breath away, as we say, confront us with something that we would rather not be confronted with. As he's been suggesting throughout the poem, it's the end of things, the limits that define us and... It's not just the limits of mind or the limits of perception or the limits of our ability to communicate with the world, with other beings, as the sadness and resignation that flood the poem suggests it's somehow tied up with mortality too. The limits of being human define humanity and include happiness. It's not somewhere beyond. Perhaps we don't want to confront those limits when we see arresting sights. Mm-hmm. And so now that he has come to this point where he's willing to declare something in his own name to address us and to have a certain kind of communion as human beings in self-knowledge, the poet is addressing us when he says, you know, and he says that it's about what makes us happy or unhappy. We are in this together. 
the farthest reaches of experience and understanding or the limits of being human that's something we all share in just yes. like we all share in the possibility of happiness it's a show of solidarity these are the only personal pronouns used in the poem and they suggest that confronted with the limits of ourselves we somehow acquire a knowledge that's essentially philanthropic it's a knowledge about the causes of happiness or how we should live and it suggests that we should pay attention to ourselves and in certain sense each other the i and the you and the us all involve that there is something more mysterious in human beings the causes of happiness than there is in the bird which just sings and its feathers just shine and once he's done this, he moves on to the end of the poem, which rehearses the beginning of the poem. Yes, he concludes. The palm stands on the edge of space. The wind moves slowly in the branches. The bird's fire-fangled feathers dangle down. So maybe it's an island. Maybe it's the shore of the sea, as I suggested. It's the edge of space. The end of the mind is replaced by the edge of space here. Yes. This insists more on sight mm -hmm. and on your place. There's more willingness in the poet to identify you, therefore, with your body now rather than with your mind. The first two stanzas are just one sentence with its grammatical problem. The last two stanzas are six different sentences. The character of the speech, therefore, changes. Mm -hmm. And this last stanza is just three lines each a sentence and they don't really seem connected but they slow down the poem and they bring this mood of resignation with maybe a tinge of serenity it's just what it is the palm stands on the edge of space there it is the wind moves slowly in the branches you know, the only motion you see is the motion in the branches of the tree which suggests wind mm-hmm which is itself of course invisible and it's even that is moving slowly that's just passing time you're not in a frozen in a picture as it might have seemed in the first stanza because there's this small element of motion mm -hmm. that's time and then he concludes the birds fire-fangled feathers dangle down it's this strange series of sounds, the F's and the D's, that mm -hmm. make it seem more playful than it really is. There is something depressive in the suggestion that the feathers dangle down, although I can't quite explain why. Yeah, there's something about the way the rhythm of that sentence is and the way it ends on dangle down. I think those two very, they're harder, the D sounds, I think, kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, kind of bring us down. It adds a yeah. weight to the conclusion. Yes, you get uh, immediately an emotional sense of what he's trying to tell you, that in some sense this is a disappointment, it's something you're supposed to resign yourself to. Mm -hmm. And it's not all down. The gold-feathered bird now is a bird with fire-fangled feathers. There's burning there, and the suggestion with it of striving, of motion, maybe of life energy, but they dangle down. It's maybe an intimation of mortality. And mm. it seems that unlike in the central stanzas, there is no more talk of song. No. This, I think, is what he's trying to get us to confront. Maybe there is a relationship between our awareness of the beautiful and our awareness of our limits and ultimately of our mortality. It's hard to 
grasp, however, why should a beautiful poem or a beautiful scene make you feel sad? He suggests at first it's that you are in some important way not part of it. You're merely a spectator of a scene that is foreign to you. You cannot but notice the inhumanity of the world and the limits of your own humanity, therefore. And this sunset scene with a bird that sings and then stops singing and in the motionlessness all there is left of time is just this moving wind in the branches. It's very, very sad. And maybe you have to be sad to be aware of your mortality and how foreign the world is. That maybe to be truly human you have to be aware of that now and then. And I think we can conclude with a brief discussion of the title of mere being. You pointed out to me that the adjective there, mere, mightn't be derisive after all. It mightn't, yeah. It might mean something else than merely being, being and nothing more. Yes, or of absolute purity, pure rather is a good way to describe it, rather than mere being, meaning nothing more than being, or just being, or trying to highlight its insignificance. It may be trying to highlight its purity, its sense of being completely fulfilled. There's an ambiguity there that I think is really interesting in how to, how to take the title. Yes, of mere being would make you think primarily that there's something else that's better. Something mm -hmm. that which you wouldn't say it's mere. Yeah. Maybe the suggestion there is that we encounter being in the element of the beautiful because we long for immortality. Something that is not mere. Something that isn't confronted with the limits he confronts us with here. Mm-hmm. And nevertheless, the truth about being seems to enforce the separation between being human and the rest of being, and therefore to assign certain limits to being human. It seems to suggest that we are some kind of being and we have to live in the way that is proper for this kind of being. So the question then would be, what is the truth about our encounter with these situations, these beautiful moments that at the same time have a capacity to make us sad? And what does that say about the sorts of beings that we are, that we poeticize, and that at such moments we seem to think that the world poeticizes itself as though making its own decor, as though a faithful thing just rises for you to see, to attract your attention and to send you thinking. Mm -hmm. And he suggests that the ultimate question here is tied up with happiness. We have to understand our limits in order to understand what causes happiness. Which of course is not the same as saying that we have to understand these things to be happy. The reasons that make us happy or unhappy might work with or without our knowledge. But being human, we have to know be just because we're human. And so that's the importance of this confrontation with our limits. Yeah, I, I agree. So this is a powerful poem, but it is also sad, or its power consists in revealing and developing this sadness. And it seems a fitting way to close a volume of Wallace Stevens' poetry, and perhaps the last of his poetry, or among the last of the poems he wrote. Caitlin, thank you for bringing this to my attention, first of all, and for joining me in the several conversations we've had on this poem, and let us do another one next time.
Absolutely. And thank you for helping me continue to think my way through it. There's something, as with all of his poetry, or at least all of it that I've encountered, there's always something new that you can pick up on as you read it each, each new time. Yes, that's so. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.